0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE.
1: Welcome everyone to the new season of the Lynx podcast. I'm Joe Passov, and I'm joined as always by Lynx digital editor, Al Lunsford. This is season 13 of the Lynx podcast. Lucky 13, and we are fortunate to have with us today the one and only Clive Clark. Many of you know Clive as a top-tier golf course architect, with credits that include Dunbarney Links in Scotland, Belgrade Lakes in Maine, and the Celebrity Course at Indian Wells Golf Resort in California. However, if you're serious about your golf, you also know Clive Clark was a superb player and an acclaimed broadcaster. With the Masters on our minds, we're going to chat with Clive about his experiences at Augusta his course designs, and plenty more. Welcome, Clive. Well, thank you. Very nice
2: of you to have me on your show, appreciate it. So Clive, tell us where you're based these days. Well, I'm sitting here in La Quinta, which uh, is very close uh, uh, to the Madison Club and to the hideaway where I I, um, designed a course uh, along with Pete Dye, there's 36 holes there, and uh, Tradition is just down the road as well. So it's a wonderful golfing area. The weather is normally very good this time of year, but as we all know, it's been a rather cool and cold winter so far. Well, it's a spectacular golf destination, as as everyone
1: who follows Lynx Magazine and golf in general know that. But you mentioned a uh, kind of cool, cloudy, wet. Uh, sounds a little bit like uh, where you uh, were situated in your formative years. Where
2: did, you, where did you grow up and learn to play golf? Well, I was uh, a boy from Yorkshire, which um, for those of you who live in America, that's uh, Yorkshire is halfway up on the right. And it was a seaside resort called Scarborough. I started when I was 12 years old. Uh, I managed to get into a golf course, uh, Scarborough North Cliff, for something like uh, three dollars, and I went with my dad to the sale room when I was twelve, and he bid on a, a, an old uh, canvas bag with a few hickory clubs in there and a few other rod shafts for about another three dollars. So I I was uh, kind of away with a year's golf as a junior member and a set of golf clubs for six. Dollars. I was on my feet, rolling, and loved it. <laughs> and then I what? went on from there to uh, play junior golf. Uh, uh, got to the final of the British Boys Championship first year out. And uh, amateur golf, I had a very good year. I won uh, four of the seven major tournaments in Britain. And uh, then turned pro, went to Australia, some coaching with Norman Von Nieder and then tackled the tour, which I played for 10 years. And then I did uh, 18 years for BBC commentating, did some work at, uh, at the Masters with CBS for several years and uh, design with Peter Alice. Initially, we worked together in BBC. And uh, then when I came over here, I had my own company and I've been involved in the design of 33 golf courses.
1: Uh, that sounds like a wonderful life in golf, <clears throat> it really does. Uh, How
2: fortunate.
1: <laughs> so, let's um, you know what? Let's while our minds are on the masters, let's jump into a little masters memory because uh, Clive, you you only played in one masters, but it was very memorable (laughs) Uh, for those of us who are trivia fans we used to throw this question out every single time and um you are the proud owner of the first televised ace in master's history as a 23 year old in 1968 first round 16th hole what are your memories of that shot
2: Well, Joe, I think the hole got in the way, but it, it, was, um, it was playing long that day because there was a, a decent breeze against. The hole was playing something like 190 yards. Uh, the pin was on that little shelf right on the back right, which is a very difficult place to end up. It's very small. When you're down the hill, off to the left or short, you come back. Um, actually, not many people would guess but being into a fairly good breeze and playing around 190, uh, that was a two-an that went in the hole. It was a beautiful shot. <laughs> it, uh, it ran up the uh, the banking, came in just from the right, dropped in the hole, and Henry Longhurst was commentating, who, uh, as one journalist put it, Henry had brilliant flashes of silence, which was great. He was a wonderful commentator. And uh, all he said Ah, uh, on the tee, it's young Clive Clark, and I dare say he'll be hitting a long arm here. <laughs> and then I hit the ball, and it ran up the front of the green and crossed and turned in from the right side and went into the hole. And the, the, the gallery on the left, over the other side of the lake, they just went crazy. They were jumping up and down, throwing hats in the air. I was actually surprised a couple of them didn't do a belly flop into the lake, <laughs> but... Uh, Henry, Henry Longhurst let all the uh, applause and shouting die to a silence. And all he said was, hmm, and there you have it.
0: <laughs> Simple as that. Welcome, um, welcome, Clive, and welcome again to our audience. You know, you. Two, a two iron seems like a pretty good club at the 16th to try that skipping shot. Across the lake and up to the green. Have you ever tried that? And and I understand you have. Uh, is it eight aces in your life? Is that still the number I That's heard that good. somewhere? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is, have you added more since? Yeah,
2: no, I haven't. And um, if I still have that too, Anne, I would probably use it for shaving because it's probably in today's golf. <laughs> not uh, not much use for anything
1: else. Is there a shot in your career? that compares with that one?
2: Yes, in the uh, Walker Cup in Baltimore, five farms in Baltimore. And we were leading very substantially uh, going into the last singles. And so Joe Carr, our captain, put the stronger players right at the end to keep the team together because we only needed to win a couple of points out of 10. And I ended up, uh playing the same player mark hopkins and the first the first singles the day before i beat him five and four and i played very well and i played pretty well the last afternoon and we were the last match out and i was uh, several under par and two down and three to play and i finished driving four and hold the putt from five yards on 16 he had a shank on the short hole 17. <laughs> I'd knocked it past the pin, straight past the pin, but a long one down the hill. And he eventually found the ball after about four minutes and rattled about in the trees. He was 60 yards right of the green and down in a valley. And he got it on the green and hold the putt. I mean, <sighs> the most extraordinary par you've probably ever seen after a shank. And I put it down about very fast greens, about four feet past and hold the four-footer coming back one down. And then I hold a 30-footer for a birdie on the last hole to square my match and to square the Walker Cup. So that probably is one of the most memorable shots I've ever hit. Um, I think as a run of holes, uh, I played in 67 at Hoylake, Jack, Jack Nicholson and I after three rounds, he was lying third, I was lying fourth. So we played in the penultimate match, and I had a terrible start. Um, i have been playing very, very well all week. And I, I think just getting caught up in the rhythm of Jack because he hit it so hard. And I started 6-5-5, five, five, which, you know, four <laughs> shots have disappeared right there. And after, uh, with five holes to play, I decided I would stop watching him. And I turned my back every time he hit a shot because I was trying to get my own rhythm back. And I finished three under for the last five. And we both moved up at base, so he finished second. And I finished third with Gary Player. So that was a sort of memorable run because when things are going badly for you, and particularly, you know, when you're playing with the number one player in the world and things are going horribly, it's very hard to recover. So I, I was very proud of that
1: understandably so uh you know that's a better segue into uh uh, something i wanted to ask you you mentioned jack nicholas and having to watch that golf swing so we'll skip ahead briefly to 1973 you were a member of the Ryder cup team for great britain and ireland Mm -hmm. the way it worked out you only got to play one match In that one four-ball match at Muirfield in Scotland, you and fellow rookie Eddie Polland were drawn to play the top two players in the world, Jack Nicklaus and Tom Weisskopf. What are your memories of that experience?
2: Well, I was actually due to play with Peter Butler, but Bernard Gallagher the night before had a plate full of oysters, which didn't sit very well the next day, so (laughs) my captain Bernard Hunt had to kind of change <laughs> some teams around. <laughs> I'd never played with Eddie Pollen before in my life. So uh, <laughs> it um, you know, it was a challenging test, obviously. And uh, you, you know, playing in a Ryder Cup, there is a it goes without saying everybody would appreciate there's a lot of pressure. And I looked at that match rather than saying I'm a little overwhelmed, I looked at it as an opportunity because on any 18-hole uh, day, the best player doesn't necessarily win. And they were the best players, no doubt about it. And standing on that tee where the gallery's about eight deep on the first tee, and you're you you you're, you're announced. And I nearly had to sit down for uh, five or six <laughs> minutes while the Americans sat in our jack necklace, umpteen Open Champions and Masters and PGA's and... On it, on it went, and and then Weisskopf, he was the current British Open champion that year and had won a lot of tournaments. And uh, so, jokingly, I say over a dinner party, and then they announced us, uh, Clive Clark, who tied for 87th spot in the South African Pepsi Cola tournament, and Eddie Polland, who made a cut last year. Uh, I say jokingly over dinner to some friends. But, um, you know, you watched Weisskopf, even the practice swing was beautiful. And Jack would come. Jack is very gentlemanly, but a great competitor. And Jack coming over to you and you're shaking hands. And he's got those ice blue eyes that, like laser beams. They kind of go right through you. Because I said, I thought this was an opportunity. So they, they hit two magnificent drives right through a tiny gap. It there was only 13 yards of fairway. Where the uh, dog leg occurs, and so they're fine and dandy. They, they've got like seven arms into the green. So it's next on the tee, representing Great Britain, Ireland. Clive Clark. I get one step forward. Eddie Pollen, my partner, grabs me by the arm, pulls me back. Says I can't wait any longer. Goes running up, tees it up, and hits it straight out of bounds over the old grey wall on the left. And I'm left. I'm left in the middle of that. And I made a perfectly good par at the first, and Weisskopf made a birdie. Eddie Polland came back from the dead on the second and made a birdie, but so did Weisskopf. I made a birdie on the third, so did Nicholas. And we we, we actually played pretty well. I, I had two fours for a 70 with rough, practically knee high on the golf course. And they beat us three and two, but uh, they were both shooting 66 and 67, which... To be quite honest, if you shot in those conditions in an Open Championship, two seventies and two sixty nines, you'd have had a fair chance of winning. I mean, they just played brilliantly. Of course, they were brilliant. Why wouldn't they?
1: Exactly. I mean, you were no slouch yourself. At you know a a joint third at the Open Championship at Hoylake a few years earlier, but. That had to be somewhat intimidating, you know, with uh, uh, with those two guys kind of at the height of their powers. And you held yeah. your own. Um, that, that's kind of a nice thing to take away from, you know, Ryder Cup as a memory.
2: Well, I, I always said, you know, against our team, if the Americans hadn't have had Nicholas, Weiskopf, Palmer, Chi-Chi, and a few others, wow, well, they'd have never beaten us, would they? <laughs> <laughs> Trevino, you yeah,
0: they've got Trevino, <laughs> Billy Casper, Tommy Aaron. I was looking at the roster of that. There you go. The yes, add them in as
2: well. Absolutely. Yeah. They're a very strong team. And, very. And, uh,
0: no, and with, you yeah, guys it's were... A pleasure
2: to play in that. It, it, it really is. And I say, you've got to look at it as an opportunity. Don't be put off by it, although there's plenty of things that would put you off. But, you know, get through that. You're a professional in what you do when you go and play your golf and try and cut everything else out.
0: And through, you know, through Thursday, you guys were in the lead by three points through Friday, you're tied. So uh, you had to be feeling like this insurmountable team of Americans, you know, maybe, maybe you had something there for them. Maybe it could have been a very special, uh, upset kind of week that no one saw coming. Uh, in the end it wasn't, but you know, it had to be feeling a little bit like you know, maybe this is our week.
2: Well, you see the same applies to being a golf course designer as well. You, you playing golf on the tour, you've got to be an optimist and you've got to have confidence in what you can do. And that's exactly what you do. do. You, you concentrate on your game. You have played for a lot of years. You've won a few tournaments, uh, you draw on that experience and the fact that you know how to hit the shots and nobody ever hits perfect shots all the time. Clearly, Hogan used to say, if I hit three perfect in a round, that was good. You watch someone like Trevino, who was a wonderful player. He actually hit very, very few shots that didn't come out the center of the club and pretty much went at the target. Uh, I played five times for Jack Nicholas, which was when he was at the top of his game, and my reflection of that was when you think back, you know. I'd analyse that it might be that night I played with him, and now I'm back home in the hotel or whatever, and I'm sitting in the bath or taking a shower, and I'm running through his round. And what I realised he was a mighty hitter. He, he was the longest of his day, uh, but he hit very few destructive shots. And he was he had a very good short game and was a clutch putter when he needed to hold the putt. He could. He had enormous uh, confidence in his own ability. And when you play like Jack Nicklaus, why wouldn't you have confidence in your own ability? In fact, often when he was playing in a Masters or a major tournament, some of the others crumbled at the end, but Jack Jack could play his own game. It didn't affect him.
0: Before we, you know, I you alluded to your architectural career. Before we go on past your playing career, I I kind of had a question that alludes to maybe you're growing up and playing the game. Um, Joe, at the very beginning of the podcast, said the one and only Clive Clark. Well, when I look up Clive Clark, two names actually pop up, both from England. The other one, who's only five years your senior, was a guy named Clive Clark, nicknamed Chippy, who was a left winger. Uh, most notably for West Brom in England and played for a few other uh high-level football teams, uh mm-hmm. English football teams. Did you have you ever been confused for Clive Clark the footballer? And and did you play football growing up? Did you aspire to yeah, play the other? Yeah,
2: I did. Um I never got to meet the gentleman in question, but um he, he was a fine, fine player. Um and i loved football cricket uh, snooker table tennis i liked fishing and roller skating as uh, as a teenager but golf took over and i used to play as i say, i started when i was 12 school holidays i played three rounds of golf every day and practiced in between because i started at scarborough northcliffe and then uh, a little later joined ganton as well which is a fabulous course Um, so literally three rounds a day the the, the scarborough north cliff didn't have a practice ground had a very short little pitching area so i'd take my putter practice in between the rounds take my putter home at night and practice on the carpet for an hour so it, it was a very full day of golf and i did it every day i just absolutely adored it
1: All right. You did bring up Ganton, said it was a fabulous course. And that's one of those golf courses uh, not too far from where you grew up uh, that always seemed to be in the world top 100. But many Americans don't know much about it. It was the venue for the 1949 Ryder Cup. Mm -hmm. But um, what what can you tell uh, folks about Ganton Golf Club? What makes it so special?
2: Okay, well, just a quickie. I think it was about 1968, and the English Amateur Championship was there. And there was David Kelly competing in the 36 hole final against Michael Bernalic. Those of you who may not know in America, Michael Bernalic, but he won the British Amateur five times, played in, I think, 10 Walker Cups. He was the outstanding amateur, rather like Dean Beeman was many years ago. Um, so, At the pub the night before, David Kelly, his opponent, was talking to some of the newspaper guys, and they said, well, you're playing Benalek, you know, who is the hot favourite. How do you see the match going? He said, the most important thing to me is to play well tomorrow and shoot par in the first round. And uh, par would be 72. And they said, oh, that's nice. Because he said, I won't be many behind, you know. I'll I'll have a chance, if I'm behind, of catching up. So around they went in the morning and they played 18 holes. Mike was he was rounding 72, Kelly, and he was 11 down. (laughs) (laughs) Michael shot 61. (laughs) (laughs) And it didn't take very long to finish the match off in the afternoon. (laughs) Extraordinary round. I know that. There's only two par threes on Ganton. So... Although there's a couple of par fours you can drive, if you get it right, it's quite a challenging course. And it's uh, nine miles inland of Scarborough, which is in Yorkshire, so it's halfway up the east coast of England, and it's a magnificent course. I, I would, and many others, would rate it in the best three inland courses in England, and it, it's a kind of cross. Some people call it an inland lynx. I would sort of call it lynxy because it's all on sand, but half heathland as well. It's a kind of mix between the two. And it has enormous bunkers, which are all revetted, which is very unusual. In other words, sod face, which is very unusual for an inland golf course. They don't usually have revetted faces. Um, and that's one of the features. Uh Excellent finishing hole, 18, and you you play across the, um, it's actually the entry road to uh, Ganton and other villages around there. Um, I just love playing there. As I say, uh, it's a top three inland course. I I would rate uh, the old course at Sunningdale, which I was involved with and still am for many years. And uh, Woodall Spa, which is not that far from Ganton, probably a couple of hours drive in Lincolnshire. But that would be my choice of inland courses in England and very well worth playing.
1: All right, Al, I'm going to jump ahead real quick because Clive touched on it. And I'm selfishly, I want to know, you were head professional at Sunningdale. Uh Uh-huh. One of of my favorite places I've ever been in golf. Mm, Gorgeous. Um, two superb golf courses the old and the new the old dates to the turn of the last century and the new about 20 years the younger what was your favorite between the old and the new and then you're going to help me out with one of my stories that i'm working on what makes the old course at sunningdale such a delightful walk in the park
2: well, they are both what I would describe, they're on sand, which is great. And they're both um, of a heathland nature, but, but with a lot of trees, particularly the old course has more trees. And they have that um, plant called heather just off the fairways. And for those of you who haven't played in heather, it's, it's like uh, wire mesh and you get in there and you hit it and it just grabs your club head. It's very difficult to get any distance at all, um, almost regardless of the lie out of Heather. So you've got these very um, attractive uh, tree lined holes on the old course, which is largely pine. Um, it's, it's very beautiful and it's, it's, it's a little more, uh, shall we say, collecting than the new course. Because the new course, a lot of the greens are built into a side slope, and if you miss on the wrong side, you are probably eight feet down below the green and playing out of heather. So that that makes it a difficult shot. And in fact, the new course has five par threes, but it's still quite difficult to score on. The old is, I think, a little friendlier, a little warmer, and a little more collective. And I I think... little more generous with the fairways. It's a fabulous course. You would never get tired of playing it. And it's a kind of cross between Pine Valley and Pinehurst. Beautiful, beautiful course.
1: Uh, Al, I just want to thank Clive for writing my story for me. <laughs> <I'm>... <laughs>
2: <laughs> well I won't shut up you know
0: that's the problem well, I but, could see yeah, the um, wheels turning I'm I'm assuming no, you guys are going to catch up again that's, I think what
1: you know what a lot of Americans who love the great courses of the world you know to have your perspective as both a, a marvelous player and the professional there to be able to break down the old versus the new and if you get the chance to go to London you really need to play them both you know it's a fabulous day of golf wonderful walk and um you know that's A feather in your cap for your association with Sunningdale.
2: Well, beautiful place, I tell you. Lovely members. um, Couldn't have been a better situation.
0: What were the top three inland courses in England? You mentioned Ganton was one of them. What were your Uh, other two? Woodall
2: Spa and Sunningdale Old would be my choice, and I think a lot of people would agree with that.
1: So you had some marvelous courses you were exposed to uh, growing up, uh, playing them, then as a professional. Um, you basically began your formal design career in the mid-1980s with uh, another favorite of ours at, at Lynx Magazine, Peter Alice.
2: Yeah, great guy.
1: So, um, and really, we could do a whole separate podcast just about Peter Alice, and, and we, we would welcome that. But getting to that point in the mid-1980s, What courses and which architects made the biggest impressions on you as you began to develop your own design philosophy?
2: Well, I was fortunate that I was studying after, in in Britain we have O levels, and two years later you get A levels, advanced levels, and that entitles you to go to college, university, and I went down to London and started to do architecture to design buildings. And I'd been to art school as well, so I can draw and I can do grading plans. So those are two essentials when you come become a golf architect. Uh, and it would be so if, if, say, you were a fashion designer. If you couldn't draw, it would be very difficult to become a top fashion designer. So that gave me a very good start. And... Peter had been involved in the business before with uh, Dave Thomas and we were working one day in commentary box on a golf tournament in North London. He said, you know, Peter, I'd love to get into golf course design. And he said, well, that's interesting. And I said, you know, you're teamed up with Dave. And he said, well, w- about two years ago, we decided to go our own ways. And I said, oh, that's interesting. He said, well told me you can draw and you can draw grading plan, master plans and things. Why don't we start a company? Which we did. And it, it, it just took off. Um, you know, it doesn't hurt you being on TV. Um, but Peter is a huge name in TV back in Britain. And I mean, he was when he was working BBC in America. Uh, in my opinion, the best golf commentator I've ever heard, uh, because he had a very light side, as you know, great voice, great timing. Uh, looked very good in vision. Um, he had the whole package and he entertained. Uh, so people really liked that. So we we were getting phone calls left, right and centre. There was a period where golf was taking off in Britain and various things. So um, I had the pleasure of working with Peter, both in the commentary box and in the golf course design. And we did about 22 or three courses together. Uh, which are all brand new, no renovations. So it was brand new golf courses. But of course, coming to the States is a different story because the budgets are vastly different. Um, to me, as a golf course designer, it was like getting let loose in a field. You know, there was loads of money to do features and things with, which was you know so exciting to progress into a world where there were so many different types of sites. But it was big money behind it which, uh, you know, that helps.
0: Lens to one of the questions we had for you. Um, we had had specified, you know, designing courses in Palm Springs in the desert, or yeah, I guess you could just say in the U.S. in general, when you get there and there's much more um, capital to be able to do things that you really hadn't done yet, you just how did your philosophy change when you got this ability to... Um, you know, unlimited, not not necessarily unlimited, but a big budget project where you could get a little creative and and use an, an artist on the
2: site, you see um the first job I got in America was Belgrade Lakes in Maine, which is a daily fee course and it was on 240 acres uh, it was a forest. So the forest, where the holes went, we had plenty of room. They come down. Each hole is individual, but under the forest were rocks the, the size of two desks put together, uh, uh, and they were just wall to wall. So we had to move those. It, it, it took two and a half years to build the course because all those rocks had to be picked up one at a time, loaded and taken. We we I put them off the edge of the. There'll be semi there'll be semi rough and then into the rock area. So generous fairways, but it made it very attractive um so there's a site that is a natural site now working in the desert where i am now you've got flat sand there's there's virtually no undulation in it at all it's just flat and with having a budget a good budget you can move dirt so you can drop the holes into a valley and you can make them move and twist through the valleys and you can create water speeches which are normally expensive be they lakes, waterfalls, babbling brooks, you bring in trees, uh, maybe palm trees, uh, may, maybe other species that grow in the desert. And you've got all the color of annual flowers and uh, regular flowers like um, even pansies, which are very colorful in mass. They, they look beautiful. so. With, with the wild shrubs and things, which also, uh, like uh, gazania, which has uh, orange flowers and flowers for most of the winter, it can, it can be a very beautiful experience and combined with the landscape and moving the dirt and creating very interesting and individual holes. So a lot depends on the site. And in, in Britain also, I, I've worked on many different types from clay and chalk and seaside and sand and... So uh, that, that kind of makes it interesting. you' you're looking at the site very carefully, assessing it, finding out what the brief is from the owners, and literally going to work doing layouts and eventually mm-hmm. going to master plan and grading plans, which takes a long time. Um, it, it's just a fascinating thing to do. What's the most
0: beautiful course you've ever seen?
2: I mean, Augusta National in late spring would take a bit of beating. Again, uh, uh, you know, it's the colour. And colour, I think, is very appealing on a golf course, apart from the fact it's a great golf course. Um, I think uh, Cypress Point, in a totally different sort of way, is is a gorgeous golf course. And when I played there, it struck me that there were holes that they, they blended together. But they, oh, that one over there looks as if it's from uh, Royal Melbourne in Australia. Ah, that hole, this next few holes look a little bit like Birkdale on the east west coast of England. Uh, and then you get those glorious uh, finishing holes along the, uh, along the ocean. Uh, it, it, of course, is really a hard favourite. Uh, you, you get a few of them, generally. Uh, Pine Valley, you see a different type of course altogether. I love Pine Valley, till I got stuck in that little bunker on the tents, that nasty little deep one that uh, <laughs> it's very difficult to get out of. <laughs> I was out in uh, I was out in 34, and I think it was an eight or nine iron shot to the, the little tents green. And the, the little bunker in the front has a specific name, which I won't go into in this program. But it's like a funnel when you get in, so like 34 out, uh, six six on a par three. But I managed to get in 72 first time, which is quite good because they always used to say that a scratch player playing off the back tees first time round would not break 80. So I had a little bit to spare 72 against an 80. So I was pretty pleased.
1: Well done. Well done, Clive. You know, you mentioned, <clears throat> just mentioned three of the courses that you really admired for both the beauty and the layout, Cypress Point, Royal Melbourne, Augusta National. And um, they're all attributable in part or in whole to, of course, Alistair Mackenzie, who I believe was a Yorkshireman.
2: Yes indeed.
1: What uh, kind from of influence? Leeds.
2: I'm so from Leeds, okay. In Leeds in Yorkshire, I think he was from.
1: And what what really did you, uh, do you feel like you you learned that, that kind of soaked in with the way you think about golf courses from maybe what you saw growing up that he had something to do with and then these fabulous golf courses that you just mentioned?
2: I like seeing the old classic courses. Uh, and of course, one has to bear in mind that many of these are even over a hundred years old, so they have changed a bit through the years. You know, if you look at the early photographs, the first masters I think was nineteen thirty four. So there's a few photographs of the construction, and uh, you know the amount of trees weren't there. It it, it didn't quite look the same because it, you know golf courses take a little time to mature. You can't you can't rush it. It's it's nature. Um, I obviously admired his work. Uh, Tom Fazio I like his work too because it's uh, not only creative but it's picturesque and Tom's work you can point a a camera and it seems to frame exactly there's the shot and it he's artistic Um, I tend to be that way as well but You know, there's different sites, and the the, uh, recent course I did at Dunbarney in Scotland, which is near St. Andrews, is a pier links. It's on sand. It's by the ocean. You look across the Firth of Forth, about 11 miles, to Muirfield, so we're on opposite course. So we're we're on the St. Andrews side, which is only a 20-minute drive away. But that, in a way, it's a little bit like doing a desert course because that starts out flat. And at Dumbani we didn't, there are only two sand dunes on the whole site where the golf course goes, which is no houses, 340 acres. I mean, it, it, it's a wonderful thing. And it was a uh, split level. So you had a slow escarpment flowing down. Uh, so the top part where four or five of the holes go and they point generally right into the Firth of Forth, which is a glorious view. And, the water glitters because the sun is coming from the south. Um, it's, uh, it, I find, of course, I'm always biased when you play around golf courses, but this is one of my very favourites uh, because it's a thinking man's golf course and it's a risk and reward golf course and it's a very entertaining golf course. This is just me talking about a course. <laughs> that I designed, okay. So I try to keep the head sort of contained. But it has won a lot of awards, and it's only been open three years, uh, even worldwide awards. So I'm very proud of that. Um, and it's it's just turned out exceptionally well, and the people love playing it. And, of course, over in Fife, not that far away, you've got the old course at St Andrews, and you've got King's Barns, Within about 20 minutes, and that is a very fine golf course as well. So, there is very good golf in Fife, and you've got that package, and you can cross the bridge over the uh, I think it's River, is it the Tay or the Dee, and turn right, and in about an hour, some you're at Carnoustie, which is another great course where, of course, Hogan was very famous for winning the Open there. So it's a glorious, uh, the scenery around Scotland in that area is superb. The people are very nice and very friendly. Uh, The golf courses are terrific. So it makes a very good package, which whereas people like going to St. Andrews and playing those top courses. And there's some very good hotels there. Um, there's, There's nothing not to like. It is a great trip.
0: Yeah, we may have uh, buried the lead a little bit by uh, waiting this long to talk about Dunbarney Links, but it's a a major reason why your name has been in the news. Obviously, the course has done very well, received a lot of rewards, hosted a Women's Scottish Open already, uh, and was a great opportunity for you to really design your first true uh, links or build a course on first... The first true well, links land. So yes, they're you. very
2: hard to come across. link sites right. very hard to get a permit. We we were lucky uh, that we did get a permit fairly quickly to do it. The Fife Council were behind it, which was great. Um, but uh, my friend Malcolm Campbell, who is uh, a golf journalist, who I'm sure you know, <laughs> um, he wrote a book. Uh, co-wrote a book with. Um, uh, it was called um, True Links. And uh, it was discovered that they could only find 246 genuine links golf courses in the entire world, you see. So they were the first golf courses, some of them, like the old course, is credited to be about 600 years old. Um, But out of some 35,000 golf courses, roughly, in the world, only 245 (laughs) are genuine links, which is... An astounding fact and people love playing them. That's how it started. And the fact that you it, it, it's very good golf for club golfers, in my opinion, because it's a running game. So you don't always have to hit the ball perfectly. You can hit it a bit off the bottom or a bit off the toe. And as long as it's straight, it can sometimes pitch 20 yards short of the green and bumble along. And suddenly you're in the middle of the green. Um, and they're in their own way challenging, particularly you know, seaside. You get breeze and sometimes wind, but uh, people really love playing them. And there are very few in the states. Very few.
0: Our yeah. editor George Pepper is the the co-author there of True yes, Links with, with Malcolm.
2: In yeah. fact, I met him over there. I think it was last year. And uh, what 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 a great yeah. gentleman he! Um, We had a bit of uh, breakfast and had a thoroughly good time together.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Clive. Um, People definitely love Dumb Barney. They also respect it. I mean, it's a true championship course uh, and it can play extremely challenging, uh, classic lengths when the the wind is up, Mm -hmm. Um, but it also has been praised because it's so fair what were you thinking about when you were granted this opportunity i mean what did it mean to you and on the one hand you you had to be absolutely ecstatic to get the opportunity and on the other hand was it at all intimidating knowing you were going to design a championship links in basically the home of golf
2: it's like i said when when you're a tour player you've got to have confidence and by the time you're on the tour, you know what you're doing pretty much. Um, once you've practiced a bit in design, and Dunbarney Links was my 33rd course, you get into a workflow and it's it's like almost learning a language. You hopefully become fluent in that language. And Dunbarney was uh, an ideal site which um, was found by my dear friend that I uh, formerly Uh, spoke about um, Malcolm, Malcolm Campbell, who lives actually two or three miles down the road. And we went from there and he had a word with the the golf course is on a 5,000 acre estate owned by Lord Balneal, who doesn't actually play golf. So it took a little while to convince Lord Balneal that giving up and leasing some of his land would be a great idea. But he got the picture and Eventually, he said, yes, this is a good idea. I don't want any houses on it, you know, cluttering the place up. And, you know, he's an ecologist, loves the butterflies and the swans that come in and various stuff. Um, So it worked very well. And and what's um, actually, I, I tried to design a course that was not only a classic links, but had a modern twist and was entertaining. Now, you mentioned the length of the golf course. Well, you can play it from the very front tees at about 5,300. Uh, there's a series of tees going forward. The, the black tees, which are, you know, the back normal tee, is around, it's shy of 7,000. But then I put in another 12 tees, what I call professional tees. So if we have a men's professional tournament, we have available 7,600 yards if we need it. I don't say it'll necessarily be played, but that may be some hole shortened because of wind or whatever, but um, it really covers a huge expanse. And, and to get a golf course that long, the, the, the extraordinary thing is, and something I love, and I think many golfers love, are short, drivable par fours. Now, in today's yardages, when you're normally aiming at about 7,000 plus off the back tees for any new golf course, they're hard to get in because... They, you know, short power for loses yards and in fact we have three we have three at Dunbarney and if the wind's the right way and you're long enough and playing off the right tee but whereas say nine on the old course at St Andrews the pros often drive it if the wind's the right way but it, it's a straightforward shot if you hit it straight at the green and you're long enough you get on on the three we have they dog leg fairly sharply, and if you want to drive the green, you've got to go all over all the trouble, <laughs> and the gnarly bunkers. Uh, wrist, you risk, you you see how far it is, you figure it out, maybe like three, it's an elevated tee, you're going to hit it a little bit further, and that's encouraging, because. but you've got to go over a huge bunker and rough to get over there, and then you've got about another 30 yards to the green, but it's down here, it'll roll on. Or you play out to the right on a safe piece of fairway, and you hit a pitching wedge or whatever. So that's the intrigue, I think. Risk and reward. Five is a similar hole where you can go, it's a longish power four, but there's a shortcut that goes right to the green. But in the bunk, in the middle of the fairway, fairways, there's two fairways, clusters of bunkers. So now you can go the safe to a, a fairway that's twice as wide, but much longer. And the first time I played the hole, I hit two good drives down each avenue, and I went to the green one, and I'm in the middle of the 25-yard fairway traveling either the side, 9-iron. Then I went to my other drive, where that fairway seems like half a fife is out there for you to hit. <laughs> you drive in a 4 iron. You see, so a huge difference. So you pay your money, you take the choice. And that, that to me, is quite intriguing golf and placement of the ball. All sorts of things come in, but it makes you think. I love thinking golf courses.
1: Boy, that's for sure. You know, Clive, Dumbarnie Links had the misfortune of opening up basically as the pandemic was just starting. So a lot of people who were excited that they had heard about it didn't get a chance to go see it for a couple of years. And even people are just making up for lost time now. It sounds like um, people are really definitely making up for lost time that uh, folks are discovering it, they're making it an absolute necessity on their trips to uh, to the old country um, to make sure mm-hmm. they play not only old course at St. Andrews, perhaps uh, you got to throw King's Barns in there. Like yes, Dumbarney is, is kind of taking equal equal footing as a must play while you're on that trip.
2: Well, some, as you mentioned, those in that, Area are the three courses you would be aiming to play as a you know, connoisseur of golf, or just want to be the fun and see you know some of the best courses that Scotland has to offer, and that that is a hot area as you know because um, St Andrews is a lovely place to stay too, and there's some there's all sorts of accommodation from B and B to five star hotels. And it's a fascinating town being so old and the old cathedral in ruins. It's fascinating. To go around, there's a university there. There's all sorts of restaurants and places of interest and golf museum and the RNA clubhouse. And it, it, it's just a fabulous place to base yourself and then play the courses that are around. And, and there are some other, you know, very nice courses to play, but I think the three you mentioned tend to separate themselves. From the others, but uh, yeah, there, just, there are, not being d- modest, what can right, I? There, there are plenty of
1: delightful courses. Uh, you won't, uh, you won't have to worry about that. Uh, but in terms of the absolute must plays, you know, if you're serious about golf and you know and can play a little bit, you're you're not going to want to miss Dunbarney Links. So we could say that that is the proverbial cherry on top in the design career of Clive Clark. But are you working on any new projects right now?
2: Um, not hands-on at the moment. I've got a couple of things that are they are interested in me doing it, but they've still got to get themselves in order in order to go forward, which is nice. But uh, having uh, basically founded Dunbarney, uh, as I say, my friend Malcolm Campbell found this site. I'd always wanted to do a Lynx. And I said, well, let's let's progress this. So I actually went over there several times, figured out what it could be, researched a lot of the other golf clubs around and other Lynx golf courses like um, Birkdale and uh, uh, Deal and others. Uh, I put the package together and was fortunate to find some good friends and acquaintances, largely in this area in the desert in California. And between us, we put the money up to do the project. Um, and, you know, we went from there, I was very involved in the planning process and every other process till we'd actually got it built. Um, Landscapes Unlimited, who are very famous. Uh, construction company in golf right? they're, they're the biggest in the world they're based in America uh, Bill Coogley is the um, founder and uh, president and they moved very quickly we actually started on the construction on uh, I think it was seven uh, 2017 in uh, let's see it was May 29 and we got it all either sodded or seeded by the end of November. That's very quick in Scotland. We were lucky too. We had a very good dry summer, but um, it, it was just a fabulous project to be involved with.
1: Well, it sounds like uh, luck is the word for the day. We are lucky to be in our 13th season of the Lynx podcast. We were lucky. Congratulations! We, thank you. <laughs> we were, we, were you. Uh, we celebrate the luck of the first televised hole in one at the masters. And that belongs to you, sir. And you said you were lucky with how Dunbarney links came together, um, both having a an amazing site, the backers, the builder, um, and the cooperation of everybody uh, in Scotland and that part of Scotland to, to make it come together. So um, I know I feel lucky from having just participated in this today and, um, and, and hearing all these amazing stories from you, Clive. So thank you very much.
2: Well, you're very kind. And thank you for having me on your show. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on your long run with this show <laughs> and many more to come.
0: Thank you. I, I actually, so I'm going to close. I have one more question for you. It's a three-parter. I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. And we really cover the, the, the three avenues of your career. Uh, as a player, as a broadcaster, and as an architect. So in terms of someone current in each of those fields, do you have someone you you like or admire uh, currently playing the game, uh, currently as a uh, broadcaster or personality on television uh, for golf, and then a, a golf course architect who you admire uh, in the current space?
2: Okay. Um, player Rory uh also i think as a human being i think he's a very good guy uh, and plays the most exciting golf i mean when he is on how he hits it that far is beyond me but uh no wonderful player wonderful player exciting to uh, watch uh the next one was um architect uh Arch-
0: tv personality or architect either oh one. tv
2: personality well to me and sadly he's uh not with us anymore but uh, peter alice who was a great friend of mine and as i say we worked together on tv for 18 years and uh, we had the design company as well uh in europe uh fabulous content as i i thought johnny miller was very interesting as well um and then um, as an architect, uh, I like some of the stuff that uh, Pete Dye came up with, and when he first started in his early days, and and still was to the end, very creative. Uh, quite difficult to play; they were generally fairly punishing golf courses. That you know, the wheels could come off fairly quickly, but they were a great challenge, and they were a different type of golf course. Uh, but for me. Uh, Tom Fazio would be my favorite because he's artistic. He understands making a hole look beautiful as well as interesting. And you can play his golf courses. If you know you don't have to hit every ball dead straight to get round, he gives you a bit of margin. So for those reasons, um for me, he would plus, you know, he's done a lot of golf courses and you never find a bad one anywhere <laughs> all his courses are good
0: very well well uh, echoing what what joe said thank you so much for joining us it's been a real pleasure uh hoping for the best and can't wait to see what's next for
2: you well uh, i've certainly enjoyed it come again because i've got a few more stories to tell you <laughs> <laughs> all right don't say well, it if you don't you mean
0: it